Welcome to the Round Pegs Square Holes podcast, hosted by myself, Sebastian Bates, and Timothy Fair-Matthews. A podcast made by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. We're launching our podcast with a series of raw but real interviews with some of the world's leading business mentors, industry experts, and entrepreneurs with incredible stories. Our goal is to inspire, educate, and entertain. So if it's your first time joining us, make sure you go back to episode one and don't miss a thing as you listen to incredible insights from our speakers. This is the Round Pegs Square Holes podcast. I gave a little intro, I think, um, about you and, and kind of where, where you are now, but I'd love to know the story about kind of like everything, you know, from where you started, why you got into cars. So give us a little walkthrough to, I guess, from when you started to now, if you can, if that's possible. I'll be brief. So I was the first car that I saw was a little Batmobile from the 1960s TV show. And, you know, back then you only had a few channels. So I was watching Batman on TV and I said, someday I'm going to own a car with a TV on the dash. Right. So that's stuck in my head and buttons on the steering wheel because I watched Speed Racer. My parents, unfortunately, couldn't care less about cars. My stepmom, God bless her. She's British. She's a Liverpoolian, a Scousa. Right. And she married my dad and inherited us, the two, the two boys, my brother and myself, when she was uh, very young, 24 years old. So she just kind of let me do what I was going to do. My father always questioned why I had to play with cars. I did it anyway. By the time I was uh, 21 years old, I had already gone through eight different cars. Uh, I was already into Japanese sports cars. I had had three Datsun Zs, 510, 720 pickups. I had an Audi Fox. I had a Honda Accord. I had an Isuzu Imark and a V6 Capri from Germany, early 70s V6 Capri. Oh, nice. I, I was mad for cars. My father never got it, never got it. So... Because I was at a, uh, my first job, I was going to school and I was working at an auto parts store to pay my way through college. My parents made a decent living, but, you know, my dad didn't want to support my hobby because of cars. So he wouldn't give me money for anything else because he knew I was going to blow it on, blow it on cars. So I went, finished school. First job was public relations for Northrop, the B-2 bomber project up in, uh, in uh, cent- uh, Central California. Actually, the desert, Palmdale. Uh, did that for a few years, and I was at a race uh, for NGK spark plugs. I was sitting in one of their booths at the Long Beach Grand Prix, and I was talking to this uh, old guy, and you know, he apparently thought I knew something about cars, so he asked me to come back for an interview for a job, and they hired me as motorsports technical manager, sent, right. me, sent me to Japan for a year, and I was in the automotive aftermarket business, and it just kind wow. of... What was, what was your first trip to Japan like? I have to stop you there, because I've always wanted to go. What was it like? Uh, well... You know, I at that point in my life, I had a Mustang, so I wasn't really so much into the Japanese cars at that particular moment. It was an ah, okay. But I knew what Skylines were, and they were mm. everywhere. They were like cameras back in uh, 1991 when I was over there. But it was still just the R32. The R33 hadn't come out yet. Yeah, yeah, okay. But um, this is, a, I mean, Japan is honestly one of the best countries in the world. It has its faults, don't get me wrong. But it's clean. It's green. Everybody is super polite. The taxi cabs don't smell, right? Um, it, there's no litter. There's no graffiti. There's no theft. It just doesn't happen. I mean, back then, it was if you drop a wallet with $5,000 in the middle of Tokyo, you're getting that wallet back with all the money in it. 
It's just an mm. honorable society. Again, they I know they have their faults. I've studied them deeply, but it was a beautiful, beautiful country steeped in history. Um, so I enjoyed it, but uh, I made some friends there with the managers at my level, and they took me out to karaoke because apparently I, the, I was the only one who could pronounce the English lyrics correctly to teach them. No, 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 you're, that's not what you're. That's not what Elvis Presley's saying right there. Okay. Uh, so I picked up the language and hung out and some of them were in the cars. They knew I was in the car. So I got to go some, to some crazy car meets, which was superb. And they're mad over there. The Bosuzuka stuff, they were mad. And then um, when they came over here to America, I took them out to the gun range to shoot guns. <laughs> they all wanted to shoot guns. Right. Yeah. Got the range and they all did. Dirty Harry. So funny. I think it's just it's so stereotypical. It? You go to America, you have to fire for a few rounds. Best thing about this country is we still have guns. Or the worst <laughs> thing, depending on your point of view. But yeah. Yeah. So so I awesome. progressed along after that. I went to Ibox Springs. I was there for a couple of years and I had a, a the ownership was great, but the, the, the senior VP of marketing had an anger management problem. So a lot of people left. I quit, went to work for the sister publication of Max Power UK, which in the U.S. was Super Street. And I was running a drag race series. I was executive director of that series for about four and a half years before they got sold. And we were running a drag racing import, an import drag racing series. Drag racing strictly for Japanese cars. That's all it was, just like the NHRA. 11 events a year, TV coverage, the whole deal, sponsors, the whole schmear is a big thing. And that's about the time that I got found with my own car at a car show by a guy, older guy, probably the age I am now, he was back then. And uh, he asked me to help him out with a little movie they were working on. In the, in the what was the car? It was, it, was it a Supra? It was the yellow Supra. The Supra. This car was actually yellow before the movie. Right. So this old white guy comes walk up to me and we had some questions and maybe he felt comfortable with me because I was the oldest oldest dude at the show. I was probably 30, 32, 33 at the time. I got to do the math. But um, so we're talking and then he says, oh, that's great. But it just seemed like he had a Hawaiian shirt. He looked like some someone's dad who just happened to be walking by on the way to the ice cream store. And then I get a call two days later at my desk and this guy says, I, you know, I was at this car show and we're working on this little movie and so forth. I said, that's really weird. This is the second guy calling me about this same movie. So he comes to my office, uh, drops down a script, hands me a $100 bill. We go to lunch over at Delmonico's in Beverly Wilshire. And he says, we want your input on this script. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. Come back to my office. He says, and well, if you can help us find some cars, I saw this bright yellow Supra at the, at the show the other day. We're looking for cars like that. I said, well, coincidentally, I just happened to have it downstairs in the garage. He says, why do you have it? I said, it's my, it happens to be my car. And then I don't think he put two and two together. Maybe all of us white people look alike. I don't know, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> His name was David Martyr. He's still a good friend to this day. Yeah. And uh, he invited me up to Universal and brought the car up there. Um, they, the story I tell is, you know, they drove up there and they were escorted me to a special area. And Vin Diesel and Paul Walker and the directors and producers and scriptwriters all came downstairs from the office building, looked at the car, decided right then and there they were going to use it in the movie, hired me as technical advisor on the spot, and the rest is history. What What are the cast like? What were the cast like? 
Yeah, like, are they anything like we would probably imagine they are like, or are they all very different to their characters? Well, the, the few that I met and had any kind of interaction with, Paul Walker, I traveled with him after Fast and Furious when I actually traveled with him. Universal sent us on tour to go to different car shows and, and promote the movie. He was a very down-to-earth, cool car guy. I'd see him at track events over the years. I wasn't a buddy. I'm not a, I'm not a star chaser. It's just never been my thing. Hmm. But he was a cool guy. We'd see each other at a race event and so forth, and we'd talk. I did some filming with him uh, for car stuff. I posted a video on my YouTube like well, now 11 years ago or something, him driving around the track. Vin Diesel was an odd bird, man. Uh, <laughs> at the junk, at the press junket after the movie film, he came out with his bodybuilder buddy. He was like, hey, man, you want to feel some muscles? You can feel these muscles. I'm like, that's odd question to ask. Just some random dude sitting on the side over there. I said, no, I, I, I think I'm good. It was just a weird. But he was very nice to me. He didn't have to be. He was very nice. Um, mm. Michelle Rodriguez, very nice. George Anniversary. They were all pretty nice in the first movie. Not so much in the second movie. Well, the cast that. was a bit different for the second, wasn't it? Yeah, it was different. I mean, Paul was still there, so I got to hang out with Paul. But Tyrese, yeah. man, that guy's a character. I love him on camera, but I don't feel like he's acting because he's pretty much the same way when the cameras are off. He's just, he's just, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sung Kang has a word for, a word for those kind of people, and I think the word is called gifted, hmm. uh, which I interpret to mean, um, you know, a little less, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not very sensitive to feelings kind of thing. You hmm. know what I mean? They're just hmm. kind of direct and uh, don't, the kind of people that would get mad at a waiter, let's put it that way. All uh, right. Well, we actually had the pleasure of working him. He came out, um, I think, to the UE. I think about three years ago. We did something for Hello Magazine. He, he he didn't he didn't like selfies too much. He wanted a professional photographer there, so we were hired just to kind of follow him around a little bit. But yeah, he's um, yeah, he loves the place here. I mean, you've not been to Dubai, have you? I have not. No. Well, I'm sure I'm sure there's always uh, there's always time for that at some point. I mean, you'd have to the car the car car crazy out here. Everyone absolutely like. There's a big like Japanese import scene here as well. You can actually get a lot of classics imported over. Like I mean, a lot of them are driving um, driving them around. You see 240Zs everywhere and skylines and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I so, know very um, well that that the guys in the Middle East, the Saudi guys as well, they're all in the cars. I mean, we see we all see the YouTube videos. I have friends who've been over there. I have friends who connect with me through uh, Instagram or Facebook, and so you show me the pictures of their projects and so forth. They're car crazy. It's a great culture. Well, I mean, uh, you've got like some of the best supercars on the planet here as well. And I mean, people have this like uh, mixed opinion that you can drive really fast here, but there's speed cameras everywhere, so it's very hard. Um, but there's some amazing roads. To be fair, there's this one uh, one road that we did a shoot with Will Smith. Uh, it was about a couple of years ago now at Jebel Jace Mountain um and it was amazing we managed to show it was like a two-gay road i mean for drifters it would have been fantastic you know so i mean going all the way up here i'll have to send you the video later wait there's a mountain in dubai yeah so um dubai is not just all desert and flat land there's um it's surrounded by mountains that are uh, joined to Amman. i know so yeah there's a lot of really good uh it's not just all straight lines right right that, i think most americans think that it is it's just desert and then a beach and that's it yeah well i'm sure you'll have the pleasure of coming here sometime soon i'm sure so i mean um i mean before we steer away from fast and furious you know no pun intended there but because i'm a, i've still got some questions around it i i need to thank you because i think i read somewhere and i don't know if this is true um 
but weren't they planning on choosing the car to stand Fast and the Furious as a Dodge Neon instead of a Skyline? Is that right? Yeah. So the, the story I tell, I want, we're picking cars for Too Fast, Too Furious. I get sit in a room with all these VPs and all these people who are in charge of production everything. John Singleton's two seats down this way. David Martyr is to my right. Ted Mosier is somewhere in there. These are all the big people. So we're going around the table. I'm technical advisor for Too Fast, Too Furious, and they're having this discussion. Okay, this lady's like, okay, well, we've solidified a deal with Dodge, and they're going to loan us their new, which was not out yet, a car called the uh, Dodge Neon SRT4. I already knew what was what it was all about. It's a turbocharged four-cylinder, 2.0 liter. In America, the Dodge Neon is strictly a rental car. If you buy one, it's disposable. If it's if it's if you buy one on purpose, it's just it's, you're gonna have to use it as a disposable car because they just they, they were not great cars. Right. Anyway, so I'm riding in my seat. John Singleton is looking down. He notices me kind of just moving around in my seat, having some kind of emotional reaction. And he says, so "Lieberman, you got something to say?" I said, "No, sir. I'll wait my turn." He goes, "No, no. I don't want no booty ass shit in my movie. If this is gonna be booty ass shit, I need to know. That's what we're paying you for." <laughs> and I said. Well, in my humble opinion, you can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. And the woman who had spent the last nine months of her life putting together this multi-million dollar marketing deal with Dodge said, are you telling us not to use a Dodge Neon and turn, turn down $12 million or whatever the number was? I said, I'm not telling you that. You asked me about authenticity. What I'm telling you is that if people see that movie and you take them out of a sports car and put them in a Neon SRT4, a, you're going to be viewed as a sellout, and no movie, car, no uh, car guy is going to take this movie seriously. And frankly, you're already on thin ice with some of the stuff that's written in the script. Yeah, I know. And I, I, I called my wife at the time on, on the way home. I said, I'm fucking fired from this movie. I'm telling you right now, they're going to fire me. Because why? And I told her the story. <laughs> and then I got a bite. After that, I got like five phone calls in, in a row from other people on the production team and said, we're so proud of you, man. That's fucking great. You did that because they, they were actually going to do that. And you were the only person to have balls enough to tell them that. And I said, so am I fired? No, you're not fired. So we dodged a bullet. What, what else have you steered them away from? What else have you saved the franchise from? Oh, God. You know, it's, as a technical advisor, you know, you, you give advice. They don't always take it. What, one of the big things that we steered away from is, in Too Fast and Furious, they had a scene where the Eclipse hit a curb, flipped upside down, and got attached to the roof of a tunnel because of all the downforce of the wing. And so he kept driving. And I was like, uh, party foul, hang on. Can we talk about this a little bit? Well, these cars make so much more downforce that they could theoretically drive on the roof of a tunnel. Yeah, okay, but are we going in the Star Trek zone now? Is this science fiction? I mean, just say it. And tell me if this is a sci-fi movie, I will change my approach. Because we're going to talk about lasers and photon torpedoes and all that other stuff if we're going down that okay. path. Uh, be that as it may, they said, yeah, okay, we're going to take it out. And I don't even know, think it was because of what I said. It was because what the cost of the CG, all that shit would, be, would have been. So they had my objection on record, and it wasn't in the movie. So I'd like to think I had a little part to play in that, but maybe not. Tell us a little bit how you got into the business that you are in now. So you're focused in digital marketing, is that right? Right. So what happened was, is I went to school for marketing. Okay. I started off in film and television, but I didn't like it after I, a mentor had told me, the only way you're really going to get into film and television is take really crummy jobs for a long time and hope that you know the right people to move you up. 
uh, that's just the way it was. And I said, yeah, I, I just don't believe in that kind of, you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. I, I feel that you have to have some kind of skill. And then, you know, I took a self-assessment. I said, well, I, you know, I feel like I have some talent, but maybe I'm not the most talented guy in the world. So um, maybe I should think it's about something else. So I figured a business and marketing in particular, because I seem to be good with talking. Um, I was, my teachers always told me that I was a good orator and, and that I was able to write a good story and that maybe that would be a good thing for me. And so I started pursuing that, went down that path. Now I was going to school, they didn't have the words digital and marketing in the same phrase. They didn't have the phrases, or the, the words social media in the same sentence. It just didn't exist. It just did not exist. Back then, you buy an ad in a magazine and then hope that somebody sees your ad and then calls mm. the phone number. But if the phone rings and you only have one phone number, was that lead generated by this magazine ad or another magazine ad or another magazine? You don't know. No way, no. So people started getting crazy and are, are, are smart and putting in different phone numbers for each magazine or different extensions so they could track it. And they thought mm. that was all sophisticated, right? Right. So when I finished school and I went to work for NGK and I came back by 1992, I was seated at a marketing desk and sitting at that desk, we were managing an ad agency. We had a PR department and all of it. And we were doing our own brochures and catalogs. So in addition to writing brochures and sales literature and all that other stuff, I, I fell into the marketing role and working with these uh, ad agencies, we're spending 20% of our spend just to pay their fee for them to come up with ads. Um, and I'm like, it's a freaking spark plug for Christ's sake, right? I mean, what are you going to say, right? Yeah. So we had to be clever. We'd had to talk about our racing history and our OEM status and all that kind of stuff. But I learned a lot. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about how poor print advertising really was, how to measure the reach of television advertising, how to measure the reach of radio advertising, all those old school things that you need. They teach you the four Ps in school for marketing, but now it's completely different. By 1999, well, actually it was 2000, when managing the Naira series, the Drag Race series, we had multiple magazines in-house. They sat on the same floor. The editors and photographers sat down the hall from me. So we would go to an event. I would write the story. The photographers would write or give us the pictures. And four months later, the magazine would hit the newsstands. Right. So this happened. I come home on a Sunday. I write the story on Monday and four months later, the story is published Monday afternoon. All the pictures from the event are already posted online. The Internet mm. had come around and mm. the stories are there written by five or six different journalists from different points of views from different parts of the country, replete with photos. And I said to myself, print is dead. It's just yeah. a matter of time. There's mm. no way they can compete. I had meeting after meeting with the heads and saying to at the company at Peterson Publishing, which had just been bought and was in the process of negotiating another sale with EMAP. I said, if you guys don't start vertically integrating your stuff where you're selling, one salesperson walks into Joe Blow Auto Stores and says, you can buy magazine ads, editorial, um, internet, uh, internet ads, and television, because we own Motor Trend TV, among others, at that time. If you don't put that into a vertical stack, you're done. It's just a matter of time. You're going to get creamed by the competition. And that's what happened. Two years later, the whole thing folded. And so you, you, you've actually been floating around the automotive industry for a while. You've worked at IBAC as well. Where else have you worked? IBOX Springs. Well, so it was NGK, IBOX Springs, uh, Naira Peterson. Then I started a Nopi Drag Race Association for Nopi Parts, which was a big retailer and onliner. 
uh, down in Atlanta, Georgia. I was doing that. I was doing work for Universal. And about the same time, right as I left Super Street, the Naira series, and right as we were wrapping up the first season of NDRA, I went to work for Magnaflow, and I was with Magnaflow through 2007. And then after that, I was working for ad agencies. I worked for two different ad agencies for, God, all the way up until about 2013, I think it was. And then I had left the ad agency world. I'd had enough of that shit, and I went to work for a company a mortgage company, but for their recruiting division, doing their digital marketing. So I was handled digital marketing for, the, for them to find loan officers and handling certain loan products. So it was pay-per-click and all that. So I went on, trained myself and got the certifications and I'd already been doing some pay-per-click and other stuff and paid social media and social influencer stuff with the agencies with which I had worked. So the agencies were, the only fun part was when I was still working with automotive stuff, working with Lexus, Toyota, Honda, and Mazda in the agency. So, so I was still kind of car centric, but mm. the mortgage thing had nothing to do with cars, but everything to do with digital marketing. And then are you car centric now still? Sorry. Are you car centric now? Uh, of the clients that we have 2016, I took over this division here, uh, for imaginate media and the car stuff that we have, let me think how many car clients we have. We had two exactly. We're dealing with attorneys, uh, rehab centers, uh, pediatricians, a hair care product, and a furniture company. That's what's under our umbrella right now. Okay. I, I mean, the small ones, but those are the big ones. Oh, it's I'm, I'm, kind, I'm okay. kind of curious because, you know, we're also in content creation. And still to this day, we get um, people still resilient to investing in content and invested in digital marketing. So you've been battling with this since it first came about. Are you noticing that trend still where you are in the US? Because it's certainly still around here in Dubai. I'm not sure you know, if that's because it's a little bit further behind, but what, what's your thoughts on that? So, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's not even a thought really, it's just math at this point. SEO, you're talking about organic search, right? So or Google gives you the recipe. They basically say they want 1,000 to 1,500 words per page, right? And a lot of people get caught up with this. Well, I want my website to look pretty and I want this picture here and that picture there. And they don't leave room any, any room for content. It's not just a question of writing content. It's writing keyword focused content. Now, if you're in a competitive business and you're not doing that, you're in deep trouble. And if you want a good example, take a look at any attorney's website anywhere. You will see that they have these drop downs, these sub navigation tabs from the top menu. And they have DUIs, uh, uh, reckless driving, uh, child support, whatever. And then if you go on that page, there's a long article, 2000 words. That article is not there for you, the, us, the consumer to read. That's to help them rank for that organic search term. DUI cases, driving while under the influence, court costs, assorted form numbers, all that. That's all there for SEO. You have to have it. Google, however, makes zero money from, from organic search. They want to get everybody into pay-per-click. So if you're waiting a long time to get into pay-per-click and you're still not doing it, don't expect your business to do well in the coming five years because it's not because every idea that has ever been thought of has been thought of by five other people and they're all doing it somewhere in the world probably and they're all competing and it comes down to your marketing guy at this point and I'm not saying this because I'm in marketing I'm telling you this because it's a fact your marketing guy is your green beret he's your special ops commando okay he or she if you're not if you don't have a good one, you're going to lose the battle. Okay. 
And if you don't have good tactics and a support team with upper management, leadership, a chain of command, whatever, that support that and let those people do what they need to do, you're going to lose the battle. There's your competi- competition is going to sneak up behind you and they're going to kill you. And in the competitive industries where we have one hair care product that's made of Gavi oil, the Gavi is such a generic phrase, it's hard to rank for that anyway, right? And so it's a constant battle and it's a small company. We have a tire company that goes up against Tire Rack. You're in, you're in Dubai, I bet you know the Tire Rack name, right? Hmm. Yeah. So, so they're in stiff competition. They had an agency that was very much old school and they left that agency and came to us because they've been doing the same old, same old for seven years and it's just not getting traction. So that's, it's, it's you know, some content. If they don't want to pay for content, you got to ask yourself the question, are they really serious about what they're doing? With regards to coming up with the perfect strategy, because you said about this marketing guy being the Green Beret, like kind of the person in charge of that. How how important is it to probably get it right organically before you start putting the paid spend behind it? Is that important? Great question. So as you are probably already know, when you're doing when you're building, you're setting up your website, you have to do all the stuff that, that needs to be done. And that's kind of laying the foundation. So you're putting the foundation, literally putting the foundation in the bricks and the stone and all that, and the mortar, everything. That's just to get you started. The organic search that you build helps build you up further, right? And you just keep building and building and building. Now, you don't have to do it all at once. We have a rehab client that we've been doing work for for four years, and we've been writing articles for them for four years, and they keep moving up both in organic search. They were on page 14 of Google. I don't know if you know this about California, but it's the rehab center of the country. Everybody wants to do rehab in Southern California. So if you right. type in, type in uh, addiction treatment in uh, Orange County, California, you'll see there's like 12 pages of providers. It is crazy here. Mm. They were on page eight when we got them. They're now usually on one or page one or page two, depending on what else is going on. They always say you could hide a dead body on page two on Google, couldn't they? Yeah. It's it's true. If you're not on page one, it's not even. It's not, but they didn't have they didn't have anything. They didn't optimize their Google business listing. They, they weren't putting pictures in the business li- listing. They're not doing anything on Yelp. They weren't doing links in their website. You know, their cross links and backlinks. They weren't doing. They were, they were doing nothing. Literally nothing. They had a web page that was built based on what the owner thought looked good. That was it. They didn't have enough dialogue in there. Didn't have enough pages, and it was a fight. And they didn't want to pay. They didn't want to pay. They didn't want to pay. And I'm like. Well, then, you know, you take it, you're paying for our advice, then stop paying us for advice. You don't need us. And then mm. we had that coming to Jesus meeting, and then we, we went on for another three and a half years with those guys. So, I mean, if they don't want to do it, sometimes it's okay to fire a client, and we've done that before. If we're giving you advice and you're not taking advice, then there's no point. Ethically, there's no point we can keep taking your money because you're just not doing it. If you're taking one thing out of 10, that's not enough. If you're taking six things out of the 10, Okay, well, we're, we're not going to take everything. We get it. We understand that. But if you're taking one of our recommendations out of 10, then this relationship is not a two-way relationship. Amazing. That was good advice. Okay, so let's let's center this back now to the reason for the talk. So you, you've, you've been through not a pandemic, but you've been – I'm really sorry, guys, if you just tuned in with my microphone. It's my end. It's not Craig's. I just want to let you know. Um, so if you've just tuned in, we're, we're talking about the pivoting in the pandemic with Craig Lieberman. Um, and, Craig, you've said before that you've gone through something like this. You've gone through not a crisis but a like a recession. What did you learn from 2009 that helped you weather it for this time? And what advice can you give 
especially on maybe startups, um, to ensure that they're prepared for the next, or if this gets worse? Well, in my particular case, at that time, I was very automotive centric. And qu quite candidly, to be honest with you, if I had my druthers, I would still be automotive centric. I like it a lot. But in recent years, it's, I'm starting to see the light, especially in the last five years. The e-commerce world is exciting because it's immediate gratification for us. We see every day the sales results in the spectacular. So the, from the pandemic, the pivot from the pandemic was realize that you're going to have to diversify. You're going to have to step out of your comfort zone. You're going to have to try new things. You're going to have to be an early adopter of new technology. And you're going to have to get on board with it quickly. You're also going to have to realize that you cannot be an expert in everything. I have a lot of CEOs that re refuse to let go of control. That is suicide. George Patton didn't stand in front of uh, up on a turret of his M4 Sherman and ride through Germany at the head of the convoy. He was a little ways back given the command, but he knew he had good people at the front. I hate to use, keep, keep using battle scenarios, but I'm a World War II guy, so... Mm. I didn't, we didn't serve in World War II for anybody who thinks I'm that old, but I'm just a World War II. But pivoting is important and, you know, understanding that you can't be an expert in everything. Find the expert, get them in there. Even if you just, you don't have to hire them per se, pay them as a consultant for several months to develop an, an, an internal team, right? Teach them to get that consultant in there, teach your people the best practices. We're doing that with the client right now. They can't afford to hire us right now, but we have an affinity, I mean, a relationship with their marketing person because she's a good person and she used to work for my wife. And so we want to help them and hopefully we're going to get their business. But right now it's, we're going in there as consult, cons, consultants and educating their, their marketing team to get them up to speed. They literally know nothing about marketing, zero. It's a nonprofit. They know nothing. Pivot, get the right people in there, teach you the things that you don't already know, get on board quickly and spend money on advertising. It's called pay-per-click. Never before in the history of man have we been in the situation that we are in today. And by that, I mean, you can spend a dollar on advertising and you will know exactly how much you get back. Exactly. There's no guesswork. It's not magazine stuff. It's not nighttime TV. It's not infomercials. You know exactly what you're getting back. So if I tell you, you give me a dollar and I'll give you back $2, would you say no? Of course not. You'd be stupid. If I tell you that you give me a dollar and I'm going to give you on average $6 or $9, would you say no? No. Of course you wouldn't say no. You give me six bucks or give me one dollar and I'll give you six dollars to nine dollars back. You, of course, you're not going to say no. Open your goddamn wallet. Spend some money. Try it. You don't have to jump in right away with full, full guns blazing. You jump in. Usually our clients jump in small with the pay-per-click purchase or spending just a few hundred dollars to a couple thousand dollars initially. It takes about two weeks, as you know, with pay-per-click for Google to start to rank the ads and all that. And then you start, then you go in. And all the tactics that we use are built, built around a, a client's budget. There's some clients that they want to sell everything in the first 15 days of the month. And so we run their budget for the first 15 days for advertising. There's some that want other, other comp their competitors' budget to run out the first 15 days of the month. And then they scale back, which a lot of big companies do. They jump in on the 16th of the month and they can bid less for more results because their competitors have now pulled back their advertising. It's just all tactics. So it's all super fast. Digital assets are the way forward, basically. It, it, it absolutely is. Until what's the scary part about all this is that Google doesn't tell anybody their formula. So, and, and probably rightfully so, it's secret sauce. I get it. 
but you've just got to keep on top of it. And if you don't have somebody, it's like looking at your stock portfolio. You're looking at it daily. If you're a day trader, you're looking at it daily, right? You've got to see the trends. You've got to be able to identify these trends early. And the same thing with pay-per-click and you've got to see what's going on. There are a lot of agencies that take your money and then they look at it once a week and then they make some recommendations. And by the time you've implemented the changes that they recommended, that trend has already passed and something else has come on because buying habits change. COVID is a perfect example. Looked like we were going to open up, sales went up. Looked like we were going to close the country and we did, sales went down in most cases. Um, we've been fortunate. We've been able to dance around that. They call it the clients with whom we work, they've seen their sales up 30% over pre-COVID period or year over year uh, from last year, like our, our oil agave oil clients up 33%. Our furniture company is up 38% over last year at the same time before COVID. But that takes pivoting and it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. You got to get the experts in there to do it. I think what you said about delegating is the biggest one for me. It's, it's, it's almost like relinquishing control and, you know, almost leaning on the experts uh, because you don't know people don't know best people don't know how to do the best of everything it's just it's, it's like the saying jack of all trades master of none um one one thing i've got a question about to thomas challenge what you guys do um how do you because you obviously generate leads and you don't close those leads into deals well and that's and that's almost well i mean correct me if i'm wrong but i mean that's almost them you're relying on the buyer's journey of the client i mean do you invest yourself to know how that process works or is that something that you kind of steer for them uh, can you elaborate a little bit please with our e-commerce sites when we are doing the pay-per-click for them it, it results in the sale are you talking about how oh uh, yeah so e-commerce so the furniture store for example we're doing their merchandising in the store, moving pictures around on the homepage, right. on sales, that kind of stuff. So every time somebody clicks, uh, there's a sale in theory. And if they're not, we follow that journey to make sure we understand mm. why they, they abandoned the card. And then we retarget them. If they, let's say, like we have a heat map installed on these websites. We know ah, where people okay. are clicking, right? So our Gavi Oil, we had a problem with product images, right? They click on the image, but the image wasn't clickable because that theme makes you hit the little shopping cart button in order to see the full, the, the full, the, the picture to blow up and you get the full product details. We changed that for them. We watched the heat maps and said, this is costing you sales. We need to change it. So we went in there, did some coding and fixed it. And now they're doing better. They're doing even better. The furniture store, whenever they have a sale, they want to put all the sale items on the front page, right? You can't just leave the so, And you can't put stuff on the front page that's out of stocks. Nothing pisses a buyer off more. But Google, through Google Analytics and other tracking instruments that we have installed in the platform, especially with Shopify, we can track to see the buyer's journey. We know what page they came into, what they clicked on the page, where their mouse mm -hmm. moved. And where they dropped off. Where they dropped off. If they mm -hmm. dropped off, they, they got a an email for a one-time offer, and then a little later they get a second email, and then a little later they get a third email. You probably experienced this in your own shopping experience. Or you're looking around on Google, you look for a toolbox on Tuesday and Wednesday afternoon, you're going through Google News and you see the, uh, an ad on the right-hand side for a toolbox, right? That's retargeting. So it's all science, man. It's great. The, the problem is if you don't move on it, if you're not looking at the data, so many companies do that. They spend the money on advertising and then they don't look at the data and make adjustments. You know why? Because they're paying their agency rate, uh, management fees <clears throat> and the, the digital agencies are so overwhelmed with clients. 
that just it's just a squeaky wheel gets the oil. I mean, I'm sure most mean well, but I have come from agencies where people are not looking at the pay-per-click for the entire month. The mm. one I was dealing with an attorney group, we were doing their sites for them. We had to leave because they were making promises that couldn't be delivered. So, so I guess what I said before then more applies to people that with, are with services, not necessarily with products. So how would you tackle something like that where you're almost reliant on the client to almost nurture and nail the deal? How would you do that? Well, can you give me a case scenario so I can kind of tailor my response a little bit? Well, let's, 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 let's take us. Let's Because obviously I'm a content creator, so let's say I'm, a cam uh, I'm obviously pitching for a job to film something for a client. I need a lead. Ah, but then okay. I have to then meet okay. them and get a brief and that sort of now, stuff. If you're creating content, you're creating video content, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, video content is great. Here's why. I'm a big proponent of, of video content for a myriad of reasons, not the least of which of how it ranks within Google. If you create a video and you post that video and you use the right keywords in the title, that get a title to get people to come to the video, but you put a detailed product description below the video. And I mean detailed. I don't mean 100 words. I mean 800 words. You start off with a link to whatever service that you're promoting. You got to check out the new Audi S4 from uh, you know UAE Imports, right? And you have the link right there in the top. And then you've got a headline and then you've got a bunch of text in there and then you've got links in there and all that other stuff. It's in there. It ranks, if you've ever looked at Google search results on a desktop, You'll see up at the top, if you're not shopping for something, if you were shopping for something, it'll be shopping items across the top. Then you've got your ads. Then you've got your organic search, your, your, uh, your uh, uh, map, and then you've got stuff below that. But if there's content relevant to what you're doing, there's a video. There's videos, YouTube videos right in that, in that front page, on the home page. It helps you rank. It helps you rank. So it will increase traffic to the site if they're done correctly. You can put clickable links in the video. So if a, yeah, go ahead. I see that your audio is dead audio. No, no audio. <laughs> I don't read lips, man. I'm sorry you're having troubles. I'm, I'm going to keep hanging on here because I still can't hear any video, any, any audio. Can you hear me now? Now I hear you. I can't hear you. Oh no. What's going on? You can't hear me? Audio. Two seconds. I'm going to have to rejoin. I'll come back in a second. All right. No. no, no, no. So we're going to carry the show live. Hello, everybody. How are you doing today? <laughs> there's a rumor going around that there's whiskey in this bottle. That's not true. It's actually Snapple. Can I hear anything? Craig, give us a give us a word. I can hear you again. No. You don't hear me? There we go. I got you back. Goodness ah, me. Brilliant, mate. Sorry. I tell you what, I've never had this before, and it happens with you, Craig. I don't know. It's either me or you. You're you're cursing me. I think it's you, mate. Oh no. I apologize. <laughs> no, I know you do live I know you do lives all the time now. So I mean it's obviously not you, but that's that's something I should actually bring up. I mean since um, since COVID hit, you've actually increased the amount of times you go live. I mean, beforehand, you were not doing this as much as, as much as you were before as well. And this is your personal brand, right? Right. So I started doing it more because the questions I were getting, um, you know, people just want content. 
Um, this is we're talking about Fast and Furious content for those who are just joining or, or, or wondering what content I'm talking about. So, yeah. you know, like my little Instagram channel, it's got 100,000 something subscribers, whatever. And my YouTube just hit 100,000 subscribers. So people want content. There's a want and a need for it. I'm producing these videos myself uh, for my YouTube channel, which is all Fast and Furious centric, of course, because of my role with the franchise. And people still want more. So I try and take comments. Uh, if I put up a post that I think is going to be um, something that's going to raise a lot of questions, then I'll usually follow up with a live so people can ask me the questions directly. But the other thing is I live in Southern California, and this is arguably one of the most car-centric cultures in the world, you know, Southern California. We have a lot of the Japanese car guys out here, you know, shops. I was Yesterday I was at a shop. Uh, the guys who supplied the cars for us for Too Fast, Too Furious, they have Paul Walker's actual personal R34 GTR that they had bought this year. Yeah, I saw that. So I was there doing a live on that. Um, so, you know, people want the content because I'm blessed to be in an area where there's opportunities for great content. The car show I go to, there's 3,000 people there every Saturday, and there's Paganis, Ferraris, Lamborghinis, JDM Classics, old cars, new cars, mediocre cars, fast cars, and ugly cars. Whatever you want, it is there. And so I share that content with my uh, with my followers. So COVID has given me an opportunity since we're pretty much working from home and I have a studio set up uh, in the house. So it works out fine. Do you think it's um, been a blessing in disguise? Does it increase your following a lot? Uh, it probably does. I mean, the numbers go up and for YouTube and all that other stuff and, and, and Instagram and so forth. But I'm really not so much concerned about the following. I'm just concerned about disseminating the information. If I got no more followers on Instagram from now on, I wouldn't care. Because mm. the people who come there come there. And I recognize a lot of the names. I have a lot of regulars, hundreds and hundreds, thousands even. The people that I recognize, I see them over and over again. And we've had a two and a half year journey together on Instagram. So they know me. I feel like I know them. A lot of them have DM. We've talked offline, that kind of thing. I've made friends with a lot of these people. It, it helps maintain a presence and you, know, mm. you want people to be to understand what you're about in this case i'm branding myself with you know, the, the, being the guy who knew something about the cars because i was there and so now i'm getting a lot of people sending me dms saying hey do you know this car this guy says this can you verify this and that part is good because i've almost become an sme a subject matter expert by default no one else in the franchise is doing this no one else had my journey they worked on one small part of the movie and then they were gone. I worked on there from pre-production, production, script discussion, uh, getting the cars, building the cars, post-production, all that. Other stuff. So I have a lot of stories to tell. So again, it goes back to diversification. If people want something and you can provide and you can provide a unique service in some way, then you'd be foolish not to do it. And I do make money from it technically. I mean, my YouTube videos do make money. I mean, it's not mm. enough to, you know, pay the mortgage or go out and start buying McLaren's cash, but maybe someday. Uh, but I enjoy it. So I would be doing it anyway. Makes you just like, if anyone who isn't following and pursuing their passion, you, they should, because I mean, it's what keeps it going, right? People yeah, it know. Depends, it depends on what the passion is. I mean, I, my experience in life has taught me that if you, just because you don't like it doesn't mean someone else can't make a living at it because I would never go bass fishing. I'm just not a fisherman. I don't want to clean them. Mm. I can go down to the store and get fish and chips. I don't need to get to go out and get my own fish and clean it and all that other stuff. But the people I know make a very good living do, just doing fishing. Great. Great. I didn't know you had fish and chips in the U.S., to be honest. 
Well, we have what we call fish and chips. I just had some the other night. It's, it's not good. <laughs> we better go to some questions because we've got we've got some. Sorry, go on. You would say something. I was to say Britain's second contribution to the world: fish and chips. There we go. <laughs> I do. I miss it. I mean, I haven't had a, a proper fish and chips in years. I'll be honest. Not a proper, not a proper English one, anyway. Um, so let's go to some questions. So we've got Sanjeev Mogul here saying, um, "I was curious which direction is the JDM car scene heading in the US? We're looking to expand exports, uh, so it'd be better to go with you." I think Saj is an importer of uh, Japanese cars in the UK. So yeah, we'll get to get your thoughts on that. All right, Saj, here's my recommendation: um, um, buy up every R34 GTR you can get your hands on. I mean, every single one. We know there were only 11,000 made. People are wet over this car, and prices mm. are already going up. So leverage what you can and buy R34s. R33s, nobody really cares about in this country. Um, Datsun 240Zs from the early 70s are good cars. Datsun 510s from the early 70s are, are good ones, but they have a smaller following. The FD3 RS7 or RX7 is starting to climb in value, so if you want to get on board early, that would be a good one. 3000 GT never caught on the, G the GTO never caught on in this country really but if you have a good clean one maybe um, that's if you're going to start exporting them to the United States um, mm. that's really it I mean American you know, America is finicky but the R34s are going to be in demand here mm. no, cool. awesome I mean I'm a big fan of the car I think Sad actually owned an R34 um, in the uh, it's, it was a nurse spec one I think you know the one that was green so I think he had one of those, but you sold that years ago, and I know he regrets it. So yeah, they're getting they're getting pricey. Um, so another question. So Sabrina says, "Did you choose to have Letty drive?" I think she means the S14 in Fast and Furious One. It's become my dream car since seeing the movie. Uh, we had several options for those cars. If I did a video on this, but basically, we had a very small budget for the first movie. So I think it was $1 million or $2 million total for all the cars, parts, accessories, gasoline, tires, spares, everything. So we had to pick something that wasn't $50,000 to buy new. Like mm. I wanted E46 M3s in there, which were just about to come out, but they were too expensive. So there mm. were a lot of cars discussed for Letty. Uh, an S13, or S14 was one. Um, there was a AE86, the Hachiroku Corolla was discussed. And I have, to, I have to look at my notes. But ultimately what it came down to is Universal, when they hired me, they had me put together casting calls for the cars. So every Friday I would invite, they'd say, I want to look at Honda Acura Integris today. So I called everybody I knew. This was before Facebook, before Instagram, before YouTube, before TikTok, before Snap It or whatever, whatever it is, what is that, Snapchat, before that. So I had to use a phone, like a phone in a house with a wire. No idea. Call these people up. Hey, bring everybody you know with the 240SX to Universal Studios at this address Friday at 11 a.m. The producers would walk the lot and say, we like that one. And that's how, that's how it got picked. That almost sounds like a lot of fun, if I'm honest. It was torture because all my friends were crying and bitching. My car needs to be in a movie. It's the best car ever. It's great. It's going to be in a movie. <clears throat> I did what I could. Of course. Do you think they chose well? Uh, yeah, the Jetta wasn't my first choice. That was supposed to be an E36 or an E46 M3. And then the son of a bitch, who was a good friend of mine, I had to talk him into it. He turned us down three times. The producers really wanted the car, and they, he turned them down three times. 
it's that's you know the jet of the white jet that Jesse drove in the movie, and now that mm. car is famous. And uh, yeah, I agree with most of the decisions they took. My Maxima, which I thought was a terrible, the blue Maxima was also mine for Vince, which I thought it was a bad choice. But we were out of time. We just needed the car. It was only in a couple of scenes, so it didn't matter. But uh, too fast, too furious. Yeah, I, it was a different game. We can pretty much get what we wanted at that point, so it was a different ball game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tad just said, yeah, good point. The 34 is already crazy money. I know they are. They've gone up so much in the last 10 years. It's insane. Um, one question here. Um, <clears throat> where you are today is obviously due to the fact that you've invested in relationships. I'd love some advice from you on how to nurture and benefit from relationships. I think maybe that's with regards to the movie. I'm not sure, but what's your thoughts there? Uh, well, I'm probably not the best person to ask that person to ask that question because I believe in a couple of things you have to, I've been blessed. If I have one gift, one gift mm. only, I would have to say it's my ability to spot a fraud. Okay. I distance myself from people who, let me put it differently. If you have a, a know a person who's friends with everyone, you probably want to stay away from that person. Okay. Why? Because that person is a coattail rider. Nine times out of 10, they are a coattail rider and they will swing with the wind. They will never stand for anything, which means they stand for nothing. Okay. I have a lot of people in my, that used to be in my circle that I know like that. And every time I suspect that they're just talking shit, they're talking shit because they just want to please the person they're sitting with. Right. When they're sitting with you, they tell you one thing. When you're sitting with somebody else, they tell them another thing. So I avoid those people. So it's okay to burn bridges. People say, well, I don't want to burn bridges. Sometimes you have to worry about, you should, you should tell the other people to worry about burning bridges with you because you have value. If you have value, the person doesn't want to burn that bridge with you. So nurturing relationships is, is, comes down to this. Try and spot good people. There's a lot of litmus tests you can use. The waiter test is the one I, I like. If I'm, whether I'm dating a girl or hanging out with a dude on a business relationship, and that person cheats, treats the wet, the waiter or the service person like shit, then I know that's a red flag. That's a giant red flag. You should treat everybody with respect. That's my opinion. But building relationship comes down to finding out who in your circle that you can provide value to and in return, hopefully get some value or in, at least endorsement from that person. It's not about what they can do for you so much, but it's about whether or not they're going to be a cheerleader for you. Right. So if you can identify those people, those are the people you want to want to have in your circle. Who's been the best relationship for you out of the franchise? Well, I have, I, there's a lot. I'm, I don't even know where to start. Um, I mean, my bosses who, who took me in, I was, you got to remember I am and, and was nobody. They took me in and had faith in me and I'm still friends with all those bosses today um coming out of the franchise but in the automotive industry i've been very blessed i've been very blessed i have a lot of good friends that i've known for two or three decades most of my friends i've known two decades plus and the people i have cut out of cut out of my life in the past 20 years because they deserve to be cut out i don't miss them at all so I'm in, I'm in a very good place keep keep your circle with high quality people right High-quality people flush the coattail riders. If they're riding on on your tails because just because you're famous or you have money, those those people are not going to be there when you don't or aren't. Mm. I've got a question here. I don't know whether I should show it, but I noticed this as well in the movie. Why did the Jetta not have a front? I think it's a caliper because I remember there was a disc. 
That's a great, I'm laughing because it's one of the most asked questions. Okay. How so is it? Let me spell it out. This person, I'm guessing that this person is under 30 years old. And here's how I can tell. Back in the 1970s, us old white guys, what we used to like to do, get on our pick em up trucks, our Toyotas, we like to lower that shit down on the floor, you know, with the block spacers and all that shit. We can afford no damn near goddamn disc brakes out in the back of the car. They had drums. So these companies started selling fake disc covers, right? To make them look like um, a brake disc, right? So right. the Jettas, one of the Jetta, we had four Jettas, right? One car is the shiny, pretty car that we rented from a private guy, right? That one had brakes with big brakes with big calipers. All the mm. stunt cars that we had don't have big brakes with big calipers. Because we were doing a low close-up on that car, there's no way we can have these little tiny brakes that are this big on a 19-inch wheel. Everybody, even if they didn't know anything about cars, they were looking at us and said, something's not quite right here. So we took fake discs and put them over the existing disc and caliper, right? And so right. the average person would just see the big brake rotor, the brake disc, and not realize that a caliper was missing. What's funny about it is that nobody noticed it for, until like two years ago. And yeah. I remember seeing the first kind of like, uh-oh, <laughs> people are going to scream right away. Nobody caught it for 18 years, 19 years. Or if they did, it was never communicated to me. So it was there just because we had, uh, it was a stunt car. It wasn't the real hero car. And we mm. had to make it look like it had a big disc brake on it. But yeah, there was no caliper there because you got the wheel, then you got the fake disc. Behind that is the caliper and the, and the real disc. That's how it works. I but see. I mean, I, I was I was on your Instagram the other day. You actually used to jump real cars. The, the R34 that you jumped was a real GTR, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. All on Too Fast Too Furious, we used all real GTRs, and that's because back then we were getting them for forty-eight thousand dollars, and the cost to fly over an R34 GTT is still thirteen thousand dollars a car, just to fly them over each per car. So you have the cost of the car, which at the time is twenty plus the thirteen thousand is is uh, thirty three thousand bucks. Then we're going to go out and get all the body kits. You have to change the hood, the front bumpers, the side skirts. You got to do no the point. corners or do fake molding on the corners. By the time that we were done, and we didn't have the time, we needed the cars where all we do is bolt on the body kit and the wheels, and we're done. So that's why we did it. So uh, in uh, Fast Four, we had one car that was a the blue ones. We had one real GTR, and the rest were GTTs. In fact, one of them was just a shell that had been cut out, and we had a VW uh, air-cooled engine in the trunk, and that was to be used for the desert driving. So, wow, what's but your best? I mean, we're gonna we're gonna wrap this interview up, guys. So, any last-minute questions, please get them in now. But I mean, Craig, what's been your fondest like memory, just just for me, like from the Fast and Furious days? Like, if you had to go back to one moment. Uh, the one moment I think was when we were going to all the car owners, the people that I helped get cast, we got invited to the premiere. I mean, the, up here, these, these shadow boxes are movie tickets from the premieres for the first two movies. So, yeah, well. so my, I think my favorite memory was seeing the looks on my friends' faces because they were all friends still are when we walked the red carpet with the stars because we're nobody walked the red carpet and sat down in the theater with the press and the movie stars. And then we got to go to the after party. So that, that was a pretty good day. I'd like to have gone to that after party. It was a hoot. It was, a hoot. It was memorable. Craig, Thankfully, I have all these photos. 
Well, I mean, like I said at the beginning of this talk, you've lived the life of many. I think it's um, it's amazing to hear all your stories. I could talk to you for hours. I'm really sorry for the mic, by the way. <laughs> I know it's been a bit frustrating, but I mean, fantastic having you on, mate. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure, and and great to get so much advice from you with regards to how to weather and you know you know how where where to be investing your money at the minute. It's been really really insightful. Um, you know, keep doing what you're doing. Huge fan. Um, how can everyone get in touch with you? You can find um, me with through. Regards- Instagram, Craig Lieberman underscore 42. You can Google search me. Uh, I come up with Google search. Uh, just Craig Lieberman. I, my name is in the bottom here. Um, I have a website, fastandfuriousfacts.com, which is car related stuff. My company's called Imaginate Media. So, uh, but if you want to just DM me on Instagram, and that's fine. We can connect. I'll give you my email directly. And uh, if you need help with anything, let me know. I mean, just but just before we go, your, your Imaginate Media business, um, you know, just, just it's, it's possible for you to support businesses here if they need it. Is that right? Because you don't yeah. just deal with large corporates. Oh, you know, we, we ju- we'd like small to mid-sized companies, you know, from $500,000 to say $5 million in business. People are getting started. Very hands-on stuff. So we like that. Amazing. Right, guys. So I'm going to pop some extra details in the comment box below after this video. Any uh, questions? Craig's just told you where to go. Thank you again, Craig. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Tim. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to be the first to get access to our live interviews, then head over to f10x.com to apply to be a part of our online community.